Hi, this is Kelly, and you're listening to Two Broads Talking Politics, the podcast where two Midwestern moms talk progressive politics and political activism with guests that include authors, activists, candidates, and more. On today's episode, we're talking national security. We have three congressional candidates with significant national security experience. In the first segment, you'll hear Alyssa Slotkin, who's running for Congress in the Michigan 8th District. In the second segment, you'll hear from Mark Osmack, who's running for Congress in the Missouri 2nd District. And in the third segment, you'll hear from Omar Siddiqui, who's running for Congress in the California 48th District. But first, I'm thrilled to introduce you to our new theme song, which we are using by permission of the band. This band is called Imunuri, and I think you're going to love them. This song is off their new album, Elephant-Shaped Trees, and the song is called Are You Listening? We're only going to play about 20 seconds at the beginning for our theme song, but if you stay tuned till the end of the episode, you can hear the full song. It's well worth a listen. Today we're here with Alyssa Slotkin, who's running for Congress from the 8th District in Michigan. Hello, Alyssa. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. So we're talking generally about national security in this episode. And so maybe we could start with a little bit of background on who you are and what your experience has been coming into this race. I grew up in Michigan, but my entire professional life has really been about national service. I was in New York City on 9-11 and my second day of graduate school at Columbia when 9-11 happened. And while I'd always been interested in international affairs, when the smoke cleared that day, I really knew that national service was what I was going to do. I was recruited by CIA to be a Middle East analyst within a year of that. And within a year of joining CIA, I was sort of voluntold, as we say, to go to Iraq. So trained in a Glock and an M4, put on my body armor and went to Baghdad. I ended up doing three tours in Iraq. And in between, I think something that's important about me is that I've worked for both Democratic and Republican administrations proudly. I tell people I did 14 years in national security and no one ever asked me if I was a Democrat or Republican that whole time. (laughs) I met my husband on my third tour in Iraq. He's a career army officer. And I have two stepdaughters that are both in service. So we're a service family. And I left Washington after five years at the Pentagon. That was my last job. I was five years and left as an acting assistant secretary of defense. So we'll wrap back around to national security, of course, in a minute. But also wondering if you can tell us a little bit about why you've decided to run for office now. So I think the simplest way I could probably explain it is just that I I believe that the tenor and tone of politics in Washington right now is fundamentally unbecoming of the country that I served and the country that we all love. And my husband and I, like I said, we've worked for lots of, I've had Democratic and Republican bosses. We've worked for multiple administrations. This is just outside the norm of what we've seen. And nothing's getting done and people feel unheard and underrepresented. And we are better than this as a country. And so we decided to throw our hat in the ring. I just sort of wanted to ask you a little bit about your thought, having worked at many different sort of in different intelligence positions, what your thoughts are on the administration's attacks on the intelligence community? Yeah, I think the attack on our institutions, particularly the institutions that are designed to keep us safe, 
It's just a really deeply demoralizing, confusing thing that this administration has decided to do. And a lot of people that I talk to on the ground, kind of across the political spectrum, Democrat, independent, Republican, don't understand why the commander in chief would take it upon himself to attack the very institutions that are working for us. And particularly the attack on, on you know, career people. I think people take it very personally. And if you're not involved in the government and, and in national security roles, you just sort of question what the point is. Certainly, we are used to, you know, Democrat, Republican, whoever the president is, believing in our institutions, wanting to make them better. There was always room for improvement, but being invested in their success instead of invested in their failure. And that just feels to be on its head right now with this administration. So, of course, I have friends who are still serving in the intelligence community in the Defense Department, and it's, it's really demoralizing. And these people are real patriots to continue to work, continue to do their job, to just keep their nose to the grindstone despite the commander-in-chief attacking their institutions and their work. What do you think that you in Congress would be able to do to counteract that a little bit? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important just looking across the country, the number of people who are veterans, who have a national security background, who have a service background of some kind, the number of candidates we have running for office with that kind of background can only be good, right? Because then you have voices of experience who understand the roles of these security institutions coming, you know, into the U.S. Congress with a, a real background on this stuff. It will help them do better on oversight. It will help them keep the public in mind in a really focused way. And I think it will help educate people on what these institutions and the few people who work in them do all day long from a place of real experience. So I think that's a positive thing. And I, I think also, you know, once you've worked in the national security world, it allows you to kind of call bull on things when people are, are throwing language around, throwing criticism around, and it's just not based mm -hmm. in fact. It's important to have credible voices, particularly on the Democratic side, that can push back and say from, from experience that, no, that's actually not how it's done or that's not how we approach things and call bull on something when we know it's, it's not factual. So there are various things that people seem to be worried about with national security right now. And I'm not sure how closely aligned the, the hype that something gets is with the actual threat it might pose. What are the areas of national security that you think are worrisome right now or things that we should be maybe really paying attention to? Yeah. So I think maybe this one will surprise you. But to me, I really believe that what is going on right now, certainly in Michigan and in my district, is what I call the great squeeze on the middle class. And people have jobs, many of them, especially compared to 2008. But between wage stagnation and the price of everything else going up, particularly healthcare, prescription drugs, tuition, people cannot get ahead. They cannot save when they want to save. They can't help their kids with college. They can't prepare for retirement. So there's a lot of anxiety and it's becoming harder to get into and stay in the middle class. And as someone who's a national security person, I believe to my core that the strength of our role abroad is only as strong as the strength of our middle class. That's our foundation. That's our backbone. And if that very basic idea that, you know, working hard 40 hours a week and staying out of trouble means you do well and your kids do better, if that idea does not hold now because of our economy and so much that's gone on, that is, an, that is to me, a direct threat to our role in the world. And so for me, the fight to preserve the middle class is directly related 
to wanting us to have that strong leadership role in the world that we've had for so many years. So that's to me is a is a direct connection between things going on here and things going on internationally. Of the international threats, I know, you know, I as a mom of young kids stay up nights worried about things like a nuclear bomb being dropped, you know, that sort of thing. That there seem to be a lot of kind of little threats that we don't hear as much about or don't pay as much attention to, things like Russia potentially hacking into our electricity grid, things like that. Are there international threats that you think are things that we're not taking seriously enough? Well, certainly I think the cyber threats were just pretty unprepared for those, certainly at the state level. Our our infrastructure is already so old and so past its lifespan. When you add to it the risk from, you know, hacking from cyber threat, either from a state actor or non-state actor, you just really can see some pretty dangerous scenarios coming about really quickly. Obviously, we're always worried about terrorist threats, homegrown terrorism is always something we should be aware of. But to be honest with you, I think a lot of the issues from, you know, our district here, I consider a lot of our our issues related to our environment and infrastructure to be homeland security issues, right? Mm -hmm. So for instance, we have a huge question about our water, our water infrastructure here in Michigan, you know, my district neighbors, Flint, Michigan. So people have fundamental questions about the, the quality of their water. They do not know when they hand their child a cup of water, if it's safe or if it's going to cause a developmental problem, that is a security and safety issue, right? That is an issue that we have started to think about as homeland security. You're much more likely in Michigan to hand your child a cup of water that could make her or him sick than to be attacked by a terrorist. So I think it really matters kind of your perspective on this. But here in our district, environmental security issues, we have started thinking about them as national security issues. It's a different frame, but I, I do think those things are just as important to people's security and safety right now as anything happening internationally. So let's talk a little bit about the 8th District. You just said that you border Flint. Mm-hmm. Where exactly is the 8th District within Michigan? Sure. So, of course, it's a gerrymandered district, so it's hard to describe in anything but sort of funny lines. But it goes from the northern suburbs of Detroit, Rochester and Rochester Hills, Michigan, all the way west through um, a large rural county and then to Lansing and East Lansing, where Michigan State University is and our capital, Michigan's capital. So mid-Michigan is how we talk about it. And so this is a district where there is currently a Republican representative, but it looks like a district Mm -hmm. that could certainly be flipped. Well, that's what we're trying to do. It's currently held by a two-term congressman. It is a gerrymandered Republican district, but it's Michigan, right? So Michiganders really do not fit well into political boxes. So it's a district that swings on president, right? They voted for Barack Obama. They voted for Donald Trump. It's a district that votes exclusively for Democratic senators for 40 years. So Michiganders are split ticket voters. They care about the person more than the party. And that's something that's really important to us. And we hope that we can uh, do our jobs here, you know, mobilize a grassroots army and give people a sense that it is they can actually ask and deserve something better from their leaders. Do you think that our election systems are under threat by... Russian hacking or or other threats that could be a problem in 2018? Yes, I believe. I think, you know, while I have a lot of respect for Robert Mueller and want him to finish his report, and to me, that's sort of the important definitive report on 
on collusion, if there is any, with the Trump administration. We know that the Russians have attempted to sow chaos in our elections. Certainly that's their playbook. I've seen for years them them use in Eastern Europe in elections there. So we know that they are attempting to sow discontent and disagreement among Americans and distract us and engage in, um, you know, attempting to affect our elections. Unfortunately, because of the way this issue has played out with the, the Mueller report, with it being such a front and center issue on the news, we haven't actually set up a task force or the right institutional organizations to actually help us prepare to protect the 2018 election. So maybe state by state things are happening or community by community or candidate by candidate. But to my knowledge, there's no official guidance on how to protect yourself or your campaign. There's no, you know, leading minds of a generation sending out official guidance and and thoughts on how to preserve the sanctity of our 2018 elections. And that concerns me deeply. And it should concern all of us, right? That's not a partisan issue, making sure that our democracy is as intended and isn't monkeyed with. But frankly, I'm sure other folks on your show have said the same thing. We're just trying to figure it out for ourselves using the best commercially available protection we can get and just staying smart. But I surely wish there was more than that that I had to rely on to make sure our our campaign stays safe. As a former intelligence official, is there anything that you could think of that would be an effective way, some effective steps that the United States could take to prevent meddling in the future? So I think there's lots of steps. And certainly I've tried to ask as many smart people on these topics as I can to you know, inform ourselves. I just think I'm still piecing things together and I have the national security background. The average candidate doesn't have nearly that kind of background. So even basic guidance like, hey, you should have two-step authentication on all your important accounts. I mean, very basic stuff like that, that I meet candidates every day who don't know that. So if there was some sort of official guidance that came out, uh, the greatest minds of a generation from the national security world and the social media world got together to come up with some some advice, that would be much, much of interest. (laughs) Do you think, assuming that the Democrats can take the House in 2018, or even just assuming saner minds uh, (laughs) sort of take over, is there some sort of committee or something that should be looking at this within Congress? Are there working groups within Congress already that should be really looking at this more closely? Is there a special working group that should be called? What what sorts of things do you think might uh, might be helpful here? Yeah, it definitely should not wait for the 2018 elections, right? It does not have to wait for the Congress to flip. This is really not a partisan issue in my mind. I think if you had a bipartisan endorsed task force, uh, as I mentioned, that puts together the leading minds from the national security world with the leading minds from the social media world, and everyone understand understood they had a mandate from the highest levels, and they had a mandate that was resourced, right, that had funding behind it so they could actually do their job. And then there was an end product, unclassified, that was, you know, for the use of candidates, states, local governments, so that everyone could, could take those best practices and implement them at the local level. That, I think, would be wonderful. There is no reason why we don't have that right now. So we've talked about National Security Summit, and, and you also have mentioned the economy and the middle class. What are the other issues that, that really drive you in your campaign? Yeah, so as I said, you know, there's the, the great squeeze on the middle class is one bucket of issues, and the other one is what I call environmental security. People worried about their water and their waters, right? We're the Great Lakes state. We have the largest concentration of fresh water in the world, and one out of every five jobs here in Michigan is connected to clean Great Lakes. 
So it's very bipartisan here, keeping our Great Lakes clean, keeping invasive species out. But the irony has not missed anyone that in the Great Lakes state, we are having problems getting clean water to our citizens. So that has just organically come up. I I really hadn't thought that I'd be running on things like environmental security, but it just everywhere I went, people were talking about it. And then preserving our open spaces, preserving our, our way of life here in Michigan. We have a huge number of hunters and anglers and preserving our open spaces, our natural heritage has become a really passionate issue for a lot of people. So these issues link a lot of, you know, many corners of our district. And I can tell you those are also issues that are important to us in Wisconsin over on the other side of the lake. We also are very concerned about our waterways and our public land and keeping keeping our environment clean and, and healthy. And to be honest with you, if I were elected, one of the first things I would do is try to like really enhance and double down on a Great Lakes caucus, right? So members of both parties, Republican and Democrat from all of the Great Lakes states, everyone who has a stake in the Great Lakes should be coming together and meeting as a bipartisan group all the time, because what happens over here affects you all, right? If we start polluting our sides of the lakes, then it's going to affect you all and vice versa. And so really ramping it up um, and doing it as a bipartisan issue, because I do think it's one of those things that unites people. And we kind of only have one shot at this. So that's something I'd love to do is sort of double down on a on a Great Lakes caucus. I love that idea. My husband is always insisting that we're not Midwesterners, we're Great Lakers. He's insisting. He's always <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. the Great Lakes are different. We're our own culture up here. So I, that's a great idea. And I think yeah. that that would be really exciting to see that. Yeah. So we do have, my understanding is we do have some members from a number of the Great Lakes states who do occasionally meet. I would just like double down, enhance it, make it a big thing. And then mm-hmm. again, as much as possible, keep it a bipartisan project um, and demonstrate, frankly, to the rest of the country that there are issues where Democrats and Republicans can agree, can work together, mm-hmm. can get things done. And we need a little bit more of that. You know, we need some positive examples against the backdrop of so much vitriol and just dysfunction. So you mentioned earlier that there are a lot of hunters in Michigan. What does it look like in Michigan, this uh, this issue of guns and gun safety? You know, I know that this is something that in a lot of Midwestern Great Lakes states uh, is something that people really struggle with, this idea of we want the freedom to, to have guns and to, to do the hunting that we do, but yet we need to think about gun safety. Yeah. So, you know, my approach to this is, you know, dictated by my background. We grew up in a gun-owning family. When I was trained for my three tours in Iraq, I carried a Glock and an M4. And my husband, as a career army officer, carried a weapon every day that he was deployed, as does my stepdaughter today. So we are big believers in the Second Amendment. But I think because of my national security background and because of my experience with firearms, I believe that we can talk about common sense gun safety. And for me, that means universal background checks, right? That's something that I think many, many gun owners understand, right? Closing all the loopholes so that no matter where you're buying a gun, you go through a background check to make sure that domestic abusers, terrorists, and mentally ill people can't get weapons. I think that's critically important. And I think that the most important thing is being able, as a congressperson, as uh, as someone who's interested in, in moving this debate forward is being willing to see problems on the ground, 
discuss those problems and then come up with a way forward. And that's something that the U.S. Congress has just been derelict at. Right. We obviously have an issue to discuss about gun safety. It's obviously a controversial issue. No one is saying we have to agree, but we do have to at least acknowledge the problem and have a conversation Mm -hmm. about it. Right. And come up with a way forward. And to me, one of those areas of common ground for most people is on universal background checks and closing all the loopholes. That's, I think, particularly Mm -hmm. important. All right. Well, is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners know about you or about Michigan? I think what's interesting, particularly for you guys being um, Great Lakes folks or Midwestern folks as well, is, you know, you know that uh, at least here in Michigan, we and I think in Wisconsin, too, Michiganders do not fit well into political boxes. Right. Washington likes to put us in boxes, but we don't really fit there. And Um, We're a swing state. We've always been a swing state that cares about the person over the party. So we have people who are rabid feminists who are avid hunters. We have conservative farmers who believe in legalizing marijuana. We have kind of the whole playbook. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. And I think the Great Lakes states and the Midwest can be a real example to places like Washington where they just sort of assume you have to be one thing or the other thing. So I actually really hope for this next congressional election that not only do we put a check and balance on some of the worst impulses of this administration, but we see the real rise of Midwestern leaders, Great Lakes leaders. I think we have a real role to play in getting our country out of the divisive politics that we've now found ourselves in. And I think given that we're you know, a diverse group politically, we have the ability to lead on those issues in ways that maybe folks from California or New York might, it might not be as easy for them. So I'm hoping for great things for Midwestern leaders in general, Great Lakes leaders. And I just really appreciate you guys doing the podcast. It's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a really great conversation and we're definitely going to be watching your race. That's yeah. great. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. Are Democrats set to ride a blue wave in 2018? Pundits say yes, but then again, these are the same people that said there was no way in hell that Donald Trump would ever be president. I'm Eric Heffinger. And I'm Soha Manik. And we're the hosts of Blue Wave Pod, a weekly political podcast from the front lines of the battle to redefine the Democratic Party. There is a tremendous amount of energy out there, but so many different opinions on how to harness that energy and win elections. We're on the ground talking with campaigns, grassroots activists, and voters who are working to make this blue wave a reality. It's a pivotal moment in our country, and we only have one chance to get this right. Join the conversation with us on Blue Wave Pod, available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. Today, we are talking to Mark Osmack, who is running for Missouri's 2nd Congressional District. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Would you want to tell us just a little bit about your campaign and a little bit about the 2nd District? Sure. So our campaign started in July of 2017. And uh, so we've been at this for about nine months or so now, but it's been an absolutely wonderful experience so far. Primary for Missouri is pretty late. It's uh, it's on August 7th. The general is essentially three months after the primary. So it's pretty quick, as we say in the Army, uh, flash to bang. So uh, kind of Mm -hmm. right after that. The district itself is the suburbs primarily. So if you think of any city whether it's Cincinnati, St. Louis, or Chicago, we have the, the second congressional district is almost all of the county, St. Louis County area, west of St. Louis City. Tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to run for Congress. 
My background, born and raised in St. Louis, fourth generation St. Louisan. I went to public school the entire time, then went to become filthy rich. So I became an English major at the <laughs> University of Missouri, where I made just millions on semicolons and Oxford commas. So after that, I made the best decision of my life and joined the Army. So I joined in 2008. A little bit later in life, I was 26. So the way that works, if you're out of college, you can't do ROTC anymore. Obviously, I did not go to a service academy, such as West Point or Air Force Academy. So I did uh, Army OCS, which is Officer Candidate School. So after all the basic training and officer training and airborne school, I was an artillery. I trained for artillery. So I did that and was stationed first in Germany, which was absolutely wonderful, and deployed to Afghanistan during the surge of 2010 to 11. And deployed for a year in southern part of Afghanistan in two provinces, so Kandahar province and also Zabul province, Z-A-B-U-L. So doing artillery, but uh, primarily we were dismounted, meaning we we're just doing patrols throughout the different areas, rural and uh, urban areas. And I uh, did that for a year and then came back, more training, and then deployed with 101st Airborne 2013 to 14 and worked on staff there. After that, wanted to try my hand at something else. So I uh, used the GI Bill and uh, was able to work on my master's in public administration in the evenings in Washington, D.C. at George Washington University. So uh, during that time in the day, I worked for I worked on the Hill. So I started off with Senator McCaskill, who, of course, is a senator from Missouri. And then that led to a defense fellowship with, at the time, Representative Tammy Duckworth. She's the Iraq war hero. So the gist of her, for those for those who don't know, she left her PhD program, called up to serve in Iraq. She was a helicopter pilot, a Black Hawk pilot. And she deployed to Iraq in 2003, was shot down, uh, lost both of her legs, and then came back and has just been amazing ever since. So she ran for U.S. House and won. And then ran for U.S. Senate 2016 and won there against an incumbent, Mark Kirk from Illinois. So I worked for her uh, for almost a year, just about a year. And then after that, worked on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, minority staff, which is the Democrats. And so did that. So I got the, the big takeaway is got to see the Senate side a little, but really focused on the House from the membership level and then also committee um, after that. So the way this whole thing transpired, public service has been a fascination of mine for a very, very long time. I know everyone has a different calling. This is something that I've just been terribly interested in from a very oddly early age. So the way it kicked off was a year ago, a little over a year ago, I was, I'm still in the Army Reserves and I was working, checking out serial numbers on different property in the, in the Army and Reserves. And I got a phone call from an Illinois number and I didn't have it saved and I answered it and it was Senator Tammy Duckworth. And she said, Mark, I talked to Senator Dick Durbin about you. And we want you to run for U.S. Congress. And my hand starts shaking. <laughs> and then that's what started it. So that's how we got, that's how we kicked off. Excellent. And Tammy Duckworth, of course, is also a new mother. <laughs> which we're, she is. We're very excited about the rule change, allowing her to uh, bring her newborn onto the Senate floor. Yeah. she. Uh, so she just turned 50, her second daughter. And that has opened up a lot of changes, kind of bringing, you know, new reforms through a pretty... I guess, arch, no, I don't say archaic, but stoic and unchanged organizations such as the United States Senate. So she's the first woman in U.S. Senate history to give birth while serving, which is just amazing. But what that's done is opened her eyes to some of the challenges that are in the Senate or in the government as a whole. So one, as you mentioned, was, can I bring my daughter? Uh, that's one issue. Uh, but another one that she recognized when she was still a congresswoman in Illinois was that 
she was trying to breastfeed in an airport and she could not find a place to go. And so, of course, not wanting to do it in a bathroom, she thought, well, my goodness, if, if I can't find somewhere to breastfeed, who else can? And so she is also looking and pushing legislation to require airports to provide breastfeeding rooms that are not restrooms. So things like that, that she has made, been made aware of through this new experience of, of motherhood and uh, fascinating stuff and just pushing women's rights to the forefront saying, hey, these things are outdated and starting to make positive change. All right. So as someone who has been in the army, been in combat, you received a bronze star, you're from a military family, and you have a master's in public administration. So we want to talk to you a little bit about national security, issues of national security and defense. So can you tell us what you think is sort of the biggest issue of national security right now? Sure. There there are a couple. I think one of the things that gets a lot of attention are what are perceived to be threats overseas, and then there certainly are some. But that, while that gets a lot of the attention in the media, there are some things uh, actually here at home that are more challenging or could pose a more immediate threat than, you know, say another country that might be an adversary. Um, so one of those is cyber. And I know some people might be thinking, ah, oh, you're talking about Russia or uh, meddling in the elections, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So the, the example that I use is when I was working for Representative Duckworth, uh, we were looking into who has access to sensitive systems or activities on military bases. So a concrete example is, let's say you're at Fort Hood, Texas, uh, the largest base in the United States, Army base. Um, every military base, the large one, is self-contained. So they have their own water supply, electrical supply, et cetera, so that if anything happens, they can still continue their mission without impact, negative impact. One of them is, bottom line, if you are, let's say there are 20 people working at the electrical facility on a, on a military base, it's often not required that you have a security clearance. And the so what of that is there could be people possibly that could be compromised, but also it's just a lack of internal security. So while the, while the, uh, say the administrator or the boss is required to have a security clearance, oftentimes personnel below that individual are not required to have security clearance. So imagine if you're on the largest military installation and you're a, an actor who wants to damage the military, it is quite possible that you could negatively impact that facility. So shutting down the water, shutting down the electric, electrical system, and, and therefore temporarily paralyzing um, that, that base, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that obviously seems like it could be a problem. Is there something that Congress could be or should be doing about that sort of issue? Yeah. So as far as the security background checks go, uh, that's one thing. So the biggest challenge that the federal government has right now is that there's an immense backlog. So after the breach that uh, happened two or three years ago, where I was one of probably tens or hundreds of thousands of people who said, hey, your private data or your private information has been compromised. So other actors internationally could have access to it. The challenge is the backlog. So it's not just ensuring that people do have the proper security clearance on a military installation. That's kind of the easy part. The hard part is, okay, what do we have to do to catch up to the immense backlog that we have. So if it takes between six and 18 months to get a security clearance, that's really tough because we need those people to be cleared now, but it does take more personnel, uh, more government employees, more contractors to kind of grease the skid, so to speak, and, and accelerate that process of clearance because it involves interview, interviews of family and friends, background checks, you know, have there been, are you in debt? What's your foreign travel like? So it's not just filling out uh, 
the form, the government form is called SF-86, which I know sounds fascinating, but the challenge is to bring on more people to do more thorough and more extensive and quicker background checks that are still very, very effective. So one thing they could do is increase the, the funding to hire and bring on more people and increase the speed in which people's security clearances are, 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 are either accepted or denied. Do you think that this goes hand in hand with things like security checks for gun purchases? A, a little bit. It's kind of a, a similar vein, but a separate issue. I mean, so one thing specific to background checks for owning a, a gun or a weapon, you remember there's a while ago, the Air Force did not report. There was an airman who was separated from uh, involuntary, kicked out of the Air Force, and he was able to get access to a gun because the Air Force did not transfer that information. So there's a lot of the information that, hey, this person was kicked out of the Air Force. He should not be able to buy a gun. And he was. And so he was also able to use that gun and, and kill people. So there's a kind of, in a way, similar to September 11th, just the issue of crosstalk between different levels of government agencies, whether it's a federal and state government or just one federal agency talking or communicating with another federal agency. So that's that kind of crosstalk and communication is, is still a challenge, but it's something that uh, I think with the right time and the right uh, plan that we can definitely improve upon. But uh, yeah, so they're, they're kind of, they're in a way related, but somewhat exclusive as well. But in, by increasing communication, that would, that would help between the different federal agencies. Are there other issues of national security that sort of keep you up at night? There, well, there are a few. The, it's, and I, I know some people may not want to hear it. Leaders in the military, Joint Chiefs of Staff, has said very clearly um, the number one threat to national security is global warming. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, if we can just put aside whether it exists or, or whether it is or it isn't, um, it is real. It is a thing. But the, the issue is the environment doesn't care whether or not we believe it's real or not. It is happening. So that's that's their number one concern. And the reason why is that as tides rise, as oceans rise, as more land is lost uh, to global warming, that is a threat. Um, but it's also a threat in the sense of what causes states to fail, uh, what causes uh, a nation to crumble. And so if w- when the temperature changes and water levels change and, and all that, that can also create food shortages, water shortages, which causes instability, which also can cause more turmoil in, say, country X, and that we might have to respond to if it's a threat to our national security abroad. So that is a huge issue. We can do things to address that. But on the military level, the way that when I speak to people, because my district is pretty, is fairly red, but I don't think it's that, it, it doesn't seem as drastic as what some people might say it is. But one way I, I kind of broach this subject is the United States Marine Corps, what they're doing is they are looking into technologies that can allow their Marines, so a group of, uh, of Marines, to act more independently and autonomously. In layman's terms, they're not going to be as reliant upon logistics. So the most dangerous part of military missions typically are getting resupplied, whether that be water, food, energy, such as fuel or anything like that. So that is a very vulnerable part of, the, of military missions. So what the Marine Corps is looking into, hey, how can we have our Marines in austere environments act more independently and autonomously from logistical change. So if that is batteries that last longer, if that is solar powered charging stations that are easily transported, um, then that's one thing that we can do to kind of break that logistical chain. What we would say is, hey, this is green energy, which turns people off. So what it really is, is national security. 
And so that's the way the Marine Corps brings it, uh, brings it to Congress and say, hey, look, this is going to help us. This is going to help defend the nation. This is going to help Marines. It's going to save lives. So that's the way I talk about it. It's not missing words or changing the topic. It's like, hey, look, the Marine Corps is looking into this. And if we want to call it green energy, fine. But what they're pitching it as is this is an issue of national security. So the better that we're able to act independently of water and energy and food, et cetera, uh, the better it's going to be for us and for the entire nation. So that's one way I try to bridge the gap between those who say global warming is not an issue. And I say, well, do you care about national security? Do you like the Marines? Oh, absolutely. Great. Well, here's what they're doing. And then that's then they get excited about that. Uh, plus, it's a great opportunity for us to con- continue research and development and uh, pursue other ways to kind of push our technological capabilities. Yeah, I mean, I'd prefer that everyone believed in climate change. But if if saying <laughs> this is national security issue will get them to, to go ahead with the technology, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's hard because, you know, one of the things I get asked a lot is, you know, how are you going to work across the aisle? How are you going to reach out to people who have very different views than what than what I have? And I think that's one way. It's uh, you're saying the same thing, but just in a in a different manner. And so, in a way, like, hey, I know this is what's important to them. And it's not being deceitful. It's it's just meeting them. I think halfway, or hopefully more than halfway, if that's what we need to do. As long as if the positive outcome from this is we reduce our our impact on global warming, terrific. So in that sense, I don't really care how we get it done, as long as we get it done. And so if that's under under national security, pushing renewable energy through the Marine Corps and other branches of service. Fantastic. Let's do it. And that way, we're, we're getting the same thing accomplished kind of almost almost accidentally together. So, yeah, I think it's a, it could be a very, very great thing. So what are the other issues that the residents of the Missouri 2nd District are really concerned with? One of them, uh, the number one thing is health care. So it's not just the accessibility, it's the affordability of it. And so a lot of people have different ways of how they want to do that, but that has been con- almost consistently the number one thing. How can we pay for health care? And so the way it ties into defense is, well, we have to have citizens that are able to serve. We, The military does have a hard time getting people to do that, to enlist, to stay. I've been in now for over 10 years, so hooray. <laughs> what turned in, what started off as a three-year hitch uh, has now gone over 10. So, But health care is one thing, and I say that because Whenever, whether it's the House or a governor or the United States Senate says, we don't have the money to pay for it, it's simply not true. And the example I use is there's a jet called the F-35. It's a new stealth fighter. So long and short of it is, the concept was if we buy more of these things, just like anything else, uh, it becomes cheaper. So the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and the Navy wanted this this jet, this uh, weapons platform, but this aircraft. But the issue is it's been very long in development and actually getting it out to, to, to the fight. But CRS, which is Congressional Research Service, and GAO, Government Accountability Office, if you haven't read the reports, they're, I'm not even kidding. They're very, very well done, and they're extremely informative. And so I know that's like about the most wonkish thing I could say, but they're really fascinating. They, they estimate by the time this jet is fully implemented, it's going to cost $1 trillion. That's with a T. So $1 trillion, to put in perspective, is one twenty-first of our national debt. And $1 trillion, to kind of give a pictorial sense, uh, being an English major, if we stacked up $100 bills one vertically, $1 trillion would go up over 67,000 miles high, and that's a quarter of the way to the moon. So when someone says we don't have money, I simply say that's not true. And so what I'm excited about is having worked on the Armed Services Committee, having worked uh, in Congress for two years, knowing where the money is, knowing how it can be spent better, but also saying, hey, look, 
we have one trillion, if we're spending $1 trillion on a jet, we can have, we can have money for healthcare for everybody, no matter who you are, no matter how much you are, how much you earn, no matter, no matter anything, no matter your gender, no matter your uh, sexual orientation, it is possible. It, the, the real issue is I wish Congress would say, we don't have the guts or we don't have the, we're not going to put in the right, we're not going to allocate funds correctly. I think that is a much more accurate response to why don't we have a healthcare system that works for everybody. The fact is they just don't have the guts or they're not going to allocate funding because the funding is there. They're just not prioritizing it correctly. And so in a district that's sort of around St. Louis, are there issues that people are, are really worried about with things like race relations, gun violence, police shootings, things like that? Is that something that you've been hearing as you've been campaigning? Yes. So gun violence, absolutely. And so it's long overdue. Race. So on my website, shameless plug, markosmack.com, I do talk about race because it is an issue. Racial inequality and economic equality go hand in hand, typically. And it is something that we have not addressed. And so the district I'm in is about 92, 93% white. And so whenever I talk about race, I understand that people get uncomfortable, but that's okay. I'd rather people are uncomfortable when we actually get to the issues and starting addressing them rather than me taking an easy line and just saying nothing or just saying support police, which of course I do, but I don't think those two things are exclusionary. To support police is not at the cost of BLM, Black Lives Matter. It, it, it's not. So I don't buy into the kind of the dialogue of if you're for one, you're against the other and vice versa. I don't think that's true. I think there is a way to bridge these two things. Uh, racial inequality is real. Even if it's not the most popular subject in the second district, I have to be, I'm compelled to be unafraid to discuss that. The district, just to give you an idea, it is the wealthiest district in Missouri. It is the most well-educated in Missouri as far as people who have bachelor's degrees or higher. But even with that, basically being almost well, 92, 93% white. There is, depending on where you're at, there is, there are sections and areas where there are uh, issues of economic inequality. So the southeast part, uh, where I grew up for a bit, called Jefferson County, um, has two areas called one called Fenton, one called Arnold. So I lived in a double wide trailer for five years in Fenton. So what's important there is not going to be important. The same issues typically that are going to be important to the people making combined $250,000 in the western part of the district. So there are, even within this area, there are pretty big gaps of economic earnings. So working on messages that are true for both sides, but resonate with both areas or different parts of the areas is key. Um, and it's something that I'm really excited about. And we've been, I think, doing a very, very good job of. So what's good for you know one is typically going to be good for the other side. But uh, gun violence, as you know, is a hot button issue right now. What I talk about is, hey, look, I've been to Afghanistan twice, and there's only one place for these types of weapons, and that's in Afghanistan or Iraq or a war zone, period. It's not for home defense. It's not for home security. It's not for self-defense. It is, it's in a war zone. The example I use is the AR-15, for instance, which is a civilian version of the rifle that I'm issued, fires a 5.56 millimeter round. And the so what of that is it's designed to do two things. When it enters soft flesh, it fractures, so it breaks apart, and it tumbles. So it's not meant to kill outright. It's meant to kill slowly. If someone is wounded, you not only take that one person down, let's say in a combat zone, you have now taken two other people out of the fight too, because now they have two other people have to take that soldier or Marine out. So by hitting one, you can actually take three out incidentally. So that's a tougher subject in some areas. 
but that's where I say, Hey, have you been in the military? No. It's like, okay, well, I got this. I know what these weapons are used for. And just to give you a background, Missouri deer hunting laws say you cannot use that, that rifle. Um, you can only have 10 rounds in your magazine. So you can only have 10 bullets in, in a rifle. So why that is used to preserve deer and not humans, I'll never know. But there are more restrictions on shooting deer than there are people. So that's uh, something we're still trying to, you know, communicate. And we're not taking people's guns away. We're like, hey, look, what do you really need? What, what, what is the purpose of this? So then that has worked to kind of bridge that gap as far as being in the Army for 10 years. And so that kind of gives more validity than if someone hadn't and only read one report and gone into an area and t- spoke about it. So I think it's one thing to talk about guns. It's another thing to have background and experience in them. And so I do want that fight. I do want that argument. I do want that discussion, hopefully, with people who feel a different way, that I'm not threatening the Second Amendment, I'm not taking away your guns, but hey, look, there's a better way to do this. If we're going to propose laws, if we're going to propose language, we have to know the language that never got out of committee and why. We have to know the language that has failed every single year in Congress. And we also have to know if we say, I want to end, I want to get rid of extended magazines. Great. Like, or high-capacity magazines. Well, we better know what a high-capacity magazine is. And so if we just use these buzzwords... I'm telling you, the other side is going to say, well, what is that? And then they're going to expect us to have this deer in the headlights look. But I'm not going to have the deer in the headlights look because I know what they are. And so I know what they can do. I know what bump stocks can do. So that's in that way, I'm the NRA's worst nightmare in that sense. Yeah, that's great. I, you certainly know a lot more about guns than I do. <laughs> so I, I am really glad that there are people like you who are starting to, to step up and talk about you know, what sorts of common sense gun laws we could be passing who know a lot about guns. So that's terrific. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's the it's whenever I give discussions, I've worked with Moms Demand Action and I'm thrilled to have been uh, awarded the Moms Demand Action Common Sense Advocate. So our gun sense advocate. So they send out a survey and we answer questions. And so we've, we've got recognized for that, I think, about four to six weeks ago. So that's just let, and, and just let you know, Moms Demand Action they're not anti-Second Amendment, and a fair amount of their members do own guns, handguns and rifles. So that gives, I think, that organization much more legitimacy. They're not saying no guns. They're just saying, hey, look, we're dying at a very, very high rate here. What's the benefit? What things can we do to, to stop this? Not, not reduce it, but to stop it. One of the kind of analogies I use is, imagine if I was diagnosed with cancer and my oncologist said, well, Mark, what you need is more cancer. Right. So it makes absolutely no sense. But for the gun discussion, for some reason, the proposed solution from one side is, well, we need more guns. So if someone can find another issue where we have where everyone agrees there's a problem, whether it be cancer or debt or in this case, gun violence, and the solution is more. Help me understand it, because whenever I propose that question, that's where it's followed by silence, because there is no other issue where everyone agrees that there is a problem. And but this is the only one where one side says, well, we need more. Um, the answer to gun violence is not more guns. It's fewer and it's, in, it's uh, more scrutinized access to them that it should be more difficult to get them, get your hands on them. And so people like to use the example of Chicago. Well, Chicago's got some of the toughest fit gun laws in the country and it's not working there. Say, okay, well, who are the neighboring states? If Indiana, if Missouri, if Iowa don't have similar gun laws, it's really difficult to enforce. So one, one bill that uh, was going through the Missouri House is called HB 1936, House Bill 1936. And what it is intended to do, and this is no exaggeration because the language is actually there, is to allow concealed carry weapons in schools, mm-hmm. in daycares, in bars, because that's what we need, in stadiums, in arenas, in school buses. 
So it is, it is an unbelievable response, an unbelievable approach that, that people are taking. And right now, the Missouri Republican Party has taken, um, where Democrats are at number three to one. So yeah, their solution to gun violence is more. And it's just, it's truly, truly, truly unbelievable. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Are, is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners know about you and your campaign? This is one thing I say. Republican failures are not the same thing as Democratic successes. So if, if people are waiting for a blue wave, keep waiting. But we have to be the cause of that wave. And the way we do that is through better policy. I am tired of excuses of why Democrats don't win. We don't lose because of gerrymandering. Yes, that is definitely an issue. But we lose because we have the wrong message and the wrong messenger. I think we need to be clear and bold in our policies and our ideas. This is not the time to be vanilla. This is not supposed to be divisive. It's just there has to be clear leadership and policy and guidance, not just kind of vanilla platitudes that don't mean anything will go anywhere. So we can't wait for one other party to fail. And I take absolutely no joy in the Missouri governor, Missouri governor Eric Greiden's struggles. I take no joy in President Trump, Trump's struggles and issues. But it's not enough just to point out his failures or concerns. We have to be better. And that, that includes me and that includes the party as a whole. So we just can't wait for them to fail so bad that people just take anybody else. Uh, we have to be better in every single sense of the word. All right. Excellent. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really great yeah, thank discussion. You. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. And uh, have a great afternoon. You too. You too. All right. Thanks. Hi, I'm Sheena, the host of the Dear Mill Family podcast. I talk about anything and everything related to military life with other military spouses, active duty members, veterans, and even children about the challenges we face and the silver linings we find along the way. Let's face it, military life is difficult enough, so if we can talk more to each other about choices, get advice from those who have been there, and have some fun connecting, we can better navigate the military lifestyle. There is definitely not one way to live this life, so come on over and embrace the suck with us. New episodes release every Tuesday, and you can find me on social media, DearMillFamily.com, or on your favorite podcast app. We are on today with Omar Siddiqui, who is running for Congress from the California 48th District. Hello, Omar. Hi. How are you all? Thank you for having me on today. Thank you for joining us. So we wanted to talk today some about your campaign in general, but then also specifically about some questions we had about national security. So could you start by giving us a little bit of background? You have an interesting professional background. So if you could sort of take us through that. Well, thank you very much. My background, I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I have a Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees in engineering from the University of Southern California. And because one of my childhood heroes was uh, Benjamin Franklin and Leonardo da Vinci, guys who were both art, humanities, and the sciences, right after graduating with my master's in engineering, I went to law school and graduated with my law degree uh, from Loyola Law School, uh, after which I was a trial attorney for several years and started my own firm back in uh, 2004. My background gets somewhat unique in that in 2010, I was recruited by the FBI to work on matters of national security and counterterrorism, and I have been doing that ever since. Our programs there had been successful such that in 2015, I was recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency to assist in engagement matters there as well. So our our first sort of question for you then is what you would rate right now as sort of the, the biggest threat to national security? 
Well, I can give you hot off the press news. Last uh, Thursday and Friday, I was at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., where I met with the office of the director, and I met with Director Christopher Wray as well, the current FBI director, who replaced Director James Comey. And what seems to be on the radar right now, obviously, is the international specifically Russia's tampering uh, in our elections. And the concern is that they did it and that they're going to do it again. So in my opinion, one thing that is of critical importance right now is ensuring that our democracy is not being interfered with by outside sources. As you can imagine, if our voters feel that their vote doesn't count, that, it's, that our voting systems are compromised, that I think undermines the very democracy of who we are. And of course, it ends up in election results that are not accurate and actually are in the best interests of our foreign adversaries, not the voice of the people. And so what is something that the Congress, that the government could be, should be doing to, to deal with that threat? That's a great question. I think what needs to happen right now is our government, regardless of party, uh, we have to put politics aside on this and realize that national security does not label itself a Republican, Democrat, or Green, or Libertarian. National security affects everyone, regardless of party. And as a result, I think what Congress needs to do is it needs to ensure that our intelligence communities, the FBI, the agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, the NSA, and the White House are all working together in concert to ensure that we can prevent a further attack. That may be including ensuring that our secretary, our various secretaries of state, our county registrar's offices, um, have the firewalls, the hardware, the software, the tools in place necessary. Unfortunately, none of that is happening right now. Are there any other things that you think are, are threats that we should be taking more seriously? Are there things that, as a national security expert, keep you up at night? Yes, yes. I think one thing that is of, of major concern to me that keep me up literally all night, many times a week, is the fact that despite all of the gun violence that we have uh, been facing in our country, nothing is being done about it. And that kind of ties in with the element of counterterrorism, which I work with the FBI on, in the sense that we have the ability, unfortunately, to sell a gun easier than it is to obtain a, a license to, to fish. You need a license to fish, you need a license to drive a car, but you don't need any of that, any training, any background checks, really, to acquire a gun. And I think that's, that's an issue of national security that we need to address right away. For example, uh, I was working very closely with the FBI on the San Bernardino tragedy and that attack. And there was an individual who supplied all the weapons to the terrorist who committed this, this heinous uh, act. And that literally was something that was so shocking because how easy it was for someone to get military-grade, military-style weapons so easily. And that needs to stop. That needs to change. I think it's definitely a matter of national security. If we're, if we're not even safe in our schools, we're not even safe out in public, that, that is, a, is a major concern for us. And I think that needs to be addressed. What I think in Congress, what we need to do about it is we need to immediately enact legislation that requires background checks. Look, as a gun owner myself, I understand. I respect the Second Amendment. But our gun laws need massive reform. If there are over 300 million guns here in the United States, enough for every man, woman, and child. And we can't have another Sandy Hook, another Aurora, another Virginia Tech, a Las Vegas, San Bernardino, Orlando, countless, too many others. 
we need to improve and enforce our background checks and screening checks. One thing that's of, of concern for me, which I'm, I'm, I'm working on as well, is if you're on the national security no-fly list, that doesn't bar you from purchasing a weapon, which is counterintuitive. I mean, if you're on a no-fly list and you're considered a threat that you cannot even board an airplane, why would you be able to uh, uh, purchase a weapon? That, that's a concern. Uh, another thing that should happen is, we, as we see too often enough, mental health is a big issue when it comes to these mass tragedies. There should be background check screenings when it comes to mental health before you can uh, acquire a weapon. Another thing we need to do is we need to research uh, and improve the safety of guns. Like I mentioned, if you need a, a license to go fishing or drive a car, you should have a license to own a gun. There should be periodic training as well. We can't you know, live in fear of the gun lobbies anymore uh, who are interested in profits uh, over lives. Enough is enough. And I guess I'll just close with another immediate thing that we can do is we have to make sure that we get semi-automatics, bump stocks. Those need to be restricted or, in my opinion, banned altogether. We don't need military-style weapons in the hands of the civilians. The Trump administration has been trying to enforce various bans on travelers, immigrants, and even refugees from certain countries in the world on the premise that Extreme vetting, quote unquote, is necessary for national security purposes. What do you think about the travel bans from like a national security perspective? Well, although I understand the intention, or I should say, I understand the premise behind making sure we vet those who come into our country is critical to ensure that we are not letting in someone who's who has nefarious intentions to our country. I get that, but when you base that decision on race, religion, national or origin, ethnicity, that's where I think it, it, it uh, crosses significantly, severely, the constitutional mm -hmm. line. I'm the first one to say that we have to ensure that we have national security and that we vet and perform background checks on individuals who seek to come into our country. However, that has to be painted equally. That cannot be, uh, we cannot pinpoint and try to isolate anyone based on factors that are unconstitutional. I think that compromises who we are. I think to say that someone from uh, one country is less likely to be nefarious than an individual from another country is racist, it's bigoted, and it's targeted. And I disagree with the Trump administration's efforts to ban individuals from certain countries just because uh, of politics. That's not going to make us safer. In fact, the opposite is going to happen. And that's one thing I emphasize, uh, Sophie Kelly, is that we need a congressman who understands national security, not like Dana Rohrbacher, who, in my opinion, is a national security threat. Uh, it's a dangerous world out there, and we need someone in Congress who understands national security, who's well-versed in diplomacy, has worked with the intelligence community such as I have, who's worked with president, the president, I've worked with President Obama, I've worked with Director Comey, I continue to work with the FBI, I've worked with secretaries of state, I've brainstormed policy with the CIA director. Uh, these are experiences uh, that no other candidate has, and I'm ready for that uh, on, on day one. So can you tell us a little bit about the California 48th District, where exactly in California it's located, and what the issues are that really concern the residents there? Sure. California's Congressional District 48 is a district in Orange County in Southern California. The current incumbent is Republican Dana Rohrbacher. The district includes the cities, and I'll just uh, throw shout out to them, is Aliso Viejo, Corona del Mar, Costa Mesa, Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach, Laguna Beach, Laguna Niguel, Newport Beach, Seal Beach, Sunset Beach, 
and portions of Garden Grove, Midway City, Santa Ana, and Westminster. But what makes this district extremely unique is its uh, ever-increasing diversity, especially when compared to even you know, 20, 30 years ago. The district comprises of some of the largest Asian American and Latin communities. For example, outside um, uh, the central part of uh, the district near Westminster Garden Grove, that area has amongst the largest Vietnamese American population anywhere in the world outside of Saigon. So it has a uh, moniker here in Orange County is being called Little Saigon, which is which is awesome. Also, you have areas of Costa Mesa, Santa Ana, Huntington Beach that have significantly large uh, Latinx uh, and Hispanic communities. So, with the Asian and Hispanic communities, we comprise nearly you know 40 percent of the demographics of our district. So that that that's a a, a great sign that. Orange County is opening up to uh, diversity, which is great. The, the major issues that affect our district specifically, obviously, in addition to national security and economic growth, making sure that the middle class has jobs and that corporations are paying their fair share. Uh, another major issue that affects predominantly the coastal areas as well is issues of environment and climate change. Offshore oil drilling is a major challenge here in Orange County and Republican incumbent Dana Rohrbacher, he's okay with offshore oil drilling, which makes our shoreline look like an industrial zone. Uh, Another major issue that we're dealing with here in Orange County is homelessness. The homelessness epidemic is reaching significant proportion because a lot of these cities are simply uh, criminalizing homelessness for uh, sleeping out uh, outside. And that's turning into a significant quagmire because cities don't know what to do with this large population. So that's an issue that we're going to have to uh, address uh, right away. So Dana Rohrbacher won by a fairly healthy margin last time around in 2016. In California, of course, you have this top two primary system where the top Two vote getters in the primary will be in the general, regardless of party. And this is a fairly crowded primary right now on both sides. What do you see as sort of your your path to victory, given all those different components? Great. That's a great question, too. Well, the first thing I'd like to mention is that Congressman Rohrbacher, unfortunately, is making it easy for all of his challengers to run. And the reason that is, is because uh, Dana Rohrbacher, unfortunately, is exposing himself as being a national threat. For example, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy said last year on the record that he thinks Putin pays Rohrbacher and Trump. And when Speaker of the House Ryan tried to hush all that, look, we got to keep this quiet, those tapes leaked. Uh, and uh, House Majority Leader McCarthy even made a comment, like, I swear to God, this isn't a joke. This is real. Dana Rohrbacher's connections and ties with Russia are now at the forefront. People are seeing, constituents and voters are seeing that Congressman Rohrbacher um, has been way too lax when it comes to his relationship with Russia. In fact, even the FBI met with Rohrbacher and warned him that he's being considered uh, as a Russian government asset, so much so that the Russian government even has a code name for him. Uh, the moniker uh, that he has right now uh, um, in the district is that he's Putin's favorite congressman. He's Russia's favorite congressman. And it, it doesn't take very long going door to door as we canvass the district to hear Republicans, Democrats, and no party preference voters alike express major concern uh, of Congressman Rohrbacher and the national threat he's, he's posing. Uh, his uh, relationship with former Trump campaign manager Paul uh, Manafort uh, who was under investigation 
coupled with comments that he makes that the Charlottesville riots were staged by liberals and were a, a quote-unquote total hoax and a Democrat setup. The fact that he wanted to cut a deal with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who's a national security threat, you know, is is well, well beyond the norm of what uh, any congressman should be doing. He's really putting Russia before his own district. What does that mean for us? That means uh, what we need to do is we need to get out the vote. And that's that's our path to victory. If we can get out the minorities, the Asian American community, the Vietnamese community, the Latinx community, very recently we were also endorsed by the Orange County Young Democrats, which includes Orange Coast College, Cal State Fullerton, Saddleback College, the Latinx Dem Club, the Latino Chicano Immigrant Club, uh, with all of these endorsements. Uh, the Asian American Pacific Islander Victory Fund, with all these endorsements coming from persons of color and being the only person of color on the ballot, I'm reaching out to all demographics saying, look, I am the candidate uh, as the son of an immigrant. I'm native to Orange County, but as a son of the immigrant, I understand the plight of the immigrant community. But given my background uh, with the FBI and the intelligence communities, I know national security. As an engineer and a lawyer, I understand issues of climate change, environment, economic growth. I understand issues uh, when it comes to gun safety. And of course, as a civil rights attorney, I also understand issues of human rights, women's rights, and LGBTQ plus rights. Uh, so our path to victory is simple. We just need to get the voters out to vote. This district is 40% Republican, 30% Democrat, and 30% no party preference. So we're focusing on all of those voter demographics. We're not focusing just on Democrats. We, For a path to victory, we need to reach out to anyone and everyone with that message. And that's one thing that I'm, I've been very surprised at with our campaign is that we're we're attracting a lot of Republican voters who like the aspect of national security. And again, I emphasize to them, if you look at my campaign website, we don't use the term Republican or Democrat anywhere on our campaign website. Why? Or our campaign flyers. Why? Because we're trying to send a message that this is greater than that. Issues of national security, healthcare, climate change, economic growth, education, gun safety, those should not be Democrat or Republican issues. Those should be American issues. I'm convincing people to vote on values. We need to get out the vote. If we get out the vote, we get out the millennials. Thanks again to the Orange County Young Democrats who, who gave us their strong endorsement. I think we have uh, a very good shot at this in the primary and in the general. In a district that's fairly close to a border and is on a coastline, is immigration a, a big issue there? Is that something that people are thinking a lot about? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially recently with um, the Senate bill SB 54, uh, California naming itself a sanctuary state in Orange County specifically, many city councils have been initiating on their agenda a, a city council measure to join the Trump administration's lawsuit, the Department of Justice lawsuit against California, declaring that the sanctuary state bill is unconstitutional. So, yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Immigration has been at the forefront. Within the past two weeks, I've been going out. I've been the only candidate going out, the only candidate from California's 48th district going out and arguing in favor of Senate Bill 54, arguing in favor of not singling out uh, our, our immigrants and dividing families. 
And as you can imagine, unfortunately, there's been a lot of Trump supporters who specifically are against the sanctuary state bill. It's a big issue in our, in our in our county and in our district. And my stance essentially on immigration is we support comprehensive immigration reform, including protecting dreamers by providing them uh, legal status. DACA needs to go one step further and provide a clean path to citizenship. I do not support the wall. I do not think a border wall will solve our issues. And if we're serious about infrastructure, as an engineer, I prefer bridges over walls, right? Um, and and mm-hmm. I think bridges actually uh, create a more safer environment. We need to work with our immigrants, not uh, you know deem them as uh, as criminals. Uh, I I oppose the travel ban, as I mentioned before. I do think refugees need to be vetted, but they need to be welcomed. And at the end of the day, uh, it's one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King, which is, you know, we may have all we may have all come on different ships, but we are in the same boat now. And I think that uh, applies right now. We cannot divide our communities. We're not safer by uh, labeling good immigrant versus bad immigrant. We're not safer by breaking up families. In fact, the opposite happens. If we have uh, immigrants who are uh, now afraid to even report crimes or come forward uh, to law enforcement uh, about uh, issues that are happening, we don't create a a safer environment. And now uh, what's happening is uh, if uh, SB 54 uh, gets stricken down by the Trump administration, what's going to happen is you're going to have the local police departments serving as federal agents to crack down on immigrants, uh, which could be something as benign as a broken taillight. All of a sudden, a broken taillight becomes a, a huge uh, immigration arrest. And, and that's creating fear and that's sending a strong chill down the spine of our vibrant immigrant communities. Don't get me wrong. If there's anyone, immigrant, non-immigrant, who commits a crime, who commits a violent felony, that individual needs to be deported instead of sitting in our jail. However, that does not mean that breaking apart families, breaking apart those who um, are in our country, whose parents may be undocumented, but whose kids are born here, uh, breaking up families in that sense uh, is not going to make it safer and is not the way to go. I stand with uh, SB 54 on that one. Well, is there anything else that you would like to make sure that our listeners know about you? I want to emphasize that I'm running because I'm really driven by a pursuit of truth and justice. My very last name, Siddiqui, means advocate for the truth, fighter for the truth. And I've spent the last two decades championing the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, especially now in a world where many of our elected officials uh, operate above the law. Um, Unlike any of the other candidates, I'm best qualified to serve our district because I have both the private and public sector experience to be congressman on day one. I do not need on-the-job training. As a trial lawyer, as an engineer, as a scientist, as an FBI national security advisor, uh, I'm a problem solver by nature. Historically, I've derailed President Bush's unconstitutional spy program. I'm currently taking up the fight against Chevron to protect our environment in one of the largest parcels of land uh, remaining here uh, in Orange County. I've brainstormed policy with President Obama, FBI Director Comey on on, uh, national security matters. I have the experience that no other candidate has. And if you just look at the resume, right, we're all applying for the job of congressman. And if you look at all of the resumes of the candidates, I want to emphasize to the voters to do just that, 
uh, you will find that I'm the candidate who has the education and the experience that's unparalleled. And I'm, I'm hoping to serve the district with that vigor. Excellent. And everyone should go to your website and see the picture of you next to Director James Comey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's a, he's one tall friend. He's he's six eight, so you could you could see the the height disparity in that picture. But uh, he's a great guy. Um, uh, he he in fact was one of the reasons, if if I may share, uh, why I'm I'm even uh, running. It was April of last year, about a year ago. I was sharing with Director Comey that President Obama thinks I should run for office. I was venting to President Obama about the state of our country, and President Obama says, "Well, you know, you can't just sit on the uh, the sidelines. Go do something about it. We're the change that we seek. There's not going to be someone that's going to come." So I was sharing this with Director Comey, and I said, "President Obama thinks I should run for office. What do you think?" And Director Comey said, "You know what? There's no time to stand around. You got to do this." So he was very encouraging, but you know, I was still thinking about whether or not I was going to run. I was explaining to Director Comey about an event that I was co-hosting called the Diversity Agent Recruitment Event. And what that was is I was trying to get more uh, diversity into the FBI, more women, more Middle Eastern, more Korean, more Jewish, more Muslim Americans into the FBI. But the problem I was having is a lot of these prospective applicants were saying, this is going to be Trump's non-diverse FBI. This is going to be the open and diverse FBI that it was once. And Director Comey was livid with that. He knew that this wasn't just a matter of a photo op. This is a matter of national security. So Director Comey was committed that he was going to attend the diversity agent recruitment event in Los Angeles. So you can imagine that was a great event for us. We were very excited uh, that Director Comey was going to fly to Los Angeles and attend this diversity agent event to, to explain to these applicants directly why diversity is so mission critical to the FBI. And I'll never forget that day. I was on my way to the event and my phone started ringing off the hook. And when I picked it up, I'm like, what's going on? And uh, people are asking, well, is the event still going on? I'm like, well, why wouldn't it be? And everyone's like, well, you didn't hear the news. Uh, President Trump just fired Director Comey. So if anyone was wondering why Director Comey was in Los Angeles, well, he was here to attend my event. I go down in history as being the first appointment Director Comey couldn't make <laughs> at a 4.30 with them to prepare and uh, for opening up the event. That, as you can imagine, uh, was a big impetus for me because I felt from the inspiring words of President Obama to the encouragement of Director Comey, I'm watching individuals who I feel have been great, great assets to our country. President Obama, Director Comey, great assets to our country. And I watched um, both of them as they left the government, uh, one, when President Obama's term was over, but Director Comey being terminated, I felt that indeed uh, there was no time for me to sit around on the sidelines and just watch. Uh, There was something I had to do about it. So on July 4th, I announced my candidacy for the 48th Congressional District. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been really informative, and we're, we're so glad you could join us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking with you all soon. Please don't forget to visit our website, omarinthehouse.com, for more information. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Our theme song is called Are You Listening? off the album Elephant Shaped Trees by the band Immunuri, and we're using it with express permission of the band. Our logo and all original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and is done expressly for Two Broads Talking Politics. We can be found on our website at twobroadstalkingpolitics.com. You can reach us by email at twobroadstalkingpolitics at gmail.com, on Twitter at Two Broads Talk, on Facebook and Instagram, and you can support us on Patreon.com. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you are interested in advertising on Two Broads Talking Politics, please email us at twobroadstalkingpolitics at gmail.com.